0: Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Toleric Community Church. Hear now the word of the Lord from Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord, and we say thanks be to God. The Lord be with you, Tulare Community Church. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at TCC. Happy October to you all. The air is getting cleaned out. The weather is just about perfect And for many of you, I know October is a favorite month for one particular reason. October is Pastor Appreciation Month, the best month of the year. Cash is fine. We are continuing in our sermon series that's working us through the book of Jonah. We're calling our series The Prodigal Prophet, which is a title that we have blatantly stolen from Tim Keller's excellent book of the same name. Now, plagiarism aside, our time today will revolve around these words. Repent before it's too late, often. Repent before it's too late, often. Ponder those words, we'll return to them soon. I was in beautiful Tucson, Arizona these last couple weeks. Six days spent in a windowless conference room debating for up to 10 hours a day with 300 other pastors and elders, sometimes to the point of tears, about the future of the oldest Protestant denomination in the United States. Who needs a vacation? Am I right? Joking aside, it was great to be with other pastors, other ministry leaders. I saw some of my favorite people on planet Earth, which was a true gift for me. Uh, One evening after a session had ended, I I got to go out for a drink with John Brown, Andy Bass, and J.P. Sundararajan. Absolutely fantastic. I love these guys deeply, and we had a blast. And our conversation went this way and that way, and it led us to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill." which is a podcast we, click, we quickly realize that we all listen to. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe not. It's popular amongst nerds like us. And what I've found is that pastors and ministry leaders are fascinated by this story. The podcast dives into the story of Mars Hill Church in Seattle and one of its founding pastors, Mark Driscoll. Driscoll became an ultra-well-known pastor in the early 2000s. He was known for his hour-long sermons and preaching style of telling it like it is. Don't worry, I'll be preaching for at least an hour in no time. Just give me a little bit of time. Mars Hill saw explosive growth. They planted campuses all over the country, and they were on pace to be the biggest church in America, with Driscoll's goal of starting 50 churches with a 1,000 members each. From interviews of people who saw it all happen firsthand, you quickly realize that Driscoll was willing to do whatever it took to make his goal a reality, burning bridge after bridge to do it. He famously compared Mars Hill Church to a bus. He said, either you're on the bus, you're off the bus, or you're getting run over by the bus But the bus isn't stopping. After a series of events over many years, Driscoll was eventually asked by the church to resign. And as he was stepping down from leadership, he offered an apology. He asked for forgiveness, he repented. For pastors and ministry leaders, this story is so compelling because it sheds light on an impulse that we all carry. And when when left unchecked, this impulse almost always leads to asking for forgiveness, to repentance that is almost always too little, too late. Now, Mark Driscoll is certainly not alone in this phenomenon. Elected officials embroiled in affairs, hypocrisy and financial crimes plague our headlines, Business leaders caught in the exact same thing, including titans of tech like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, who are looked to as modern-day saviors. We have church leaders all over the world engaged in moral failures, spanning the spectrum of denominations and traditions. The apologies come, confession is made, forgiveness asked for, but it's almost always too little, too late. Now, these are major, life-ruining, foundation-cracking events amongst individuals with a lot of social clout. But we are far, you and I, are far from immune from the same impulse. My wife, Claire, and I, we want to green up our backyard. We want to give it some vitality. So, one day, we both agree that we want a tree in the backyard for some shade. Awesome, right? And then I say that I'd like to tear up some brick in the front yard to plant another couple trees for that same purpose. Makes sense, right? Well, Claire says she would rather use that money to landscape near the new tree in the backyard. I say that I think that's silly since we're already putting a tree in the backyard. What we need is some shade on the front of of the house like every other house on the block. She replies that that's short-sighted since it'll take decades to grow trees tall enough to actually shade our house, and if we're the only house on the block that doesn't have trees in the front yard, maybe there's a reason. She says maybe trees don't grow well where I want to plant them. The next day, we hop in the truck, we drive to the nursery in complete silence, and after a tense day working in the yard, we look at each other, we apologize, we ask for forgiveness, we move on. And the reality is that both of us, at one point or another, we made a conscious decision to dig in our heels, knowing full well that we'd, in all likelihood, have to apologize for it later. Now, I know Claire and I are the only ones listening to this, the only ones in our community with this kind of experience. So, Maybe you all can just imagine it even though you can't relate in the slightest. But it does beg the question, what if the apology came before it was already too late? What if repentance came before we dug in our heels, before the pain, before the damage? What if asking for forgiveness was a regular routine part of our lives? Well, we get a taste of this in our passage today. We're now three quarters of our way through this incredible little book of Jonah. Pastor Shane walked us through the first couple chapters where we saw Jonah do whatever he could to avoid God's missionary calling to the city of Nineveh, which eventually led him, Jonah, into the belly of a fish. And in that belly, Jonah prays for help, God intervenes, and Jonah is vomited back onto dry land. And that's where we pick up in chapter 3. And chapter 3 begins exactly like chapter 1 did. This is what verses 1 and 2 say. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now we remember from chapter one that Nineveh was at the time the capital of the Assyrian empire and was known as the most violent and brutal empire of its time. Turning his back on this horrifying city in chapter one, Jonah obeys in chapter three. We're told in verse four that Jonah heads into this unfathomably large city and he begins preaching says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now the image that comes to mind for me is the guy with a megaphone who stood outside of Michigan Stadium week after week, wearing sandwich board Bible verse signs front and back, standing on an actual soapbox, screaming at people to repent or they'll burn in hell. I walked by this guy every week during the fall when I was in college. And maybe his strategy worked. I I trust that God can use that in remarkable ways. But I'll be honest that whenever I saw him, I would make a beeline for the next entrance to get into the stadium so that I didn't have to go too close to him. So we've got Jonah on his soapbox, megaphone in hand, wearing his sandwich board signs, right? And the most amazing thing happens. They listen to him. Verse 5 says, The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Not only do they believe him, but they do something about it. From the bottom to the top, eating stops, sackcloth, which is essentially a burlap sack that indicated deep, deep humility, begins. Then we're told that the king hears about it in verse 6, and he tells everyone to follow suit. He says in verses 7 and 9, he actually writes, "...by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence." Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn with his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Just like Jim Harbaugh, coach of Michigan football team, telling his players to go through the concession stands, grab all the hot dogs, throw them in the trash, and then Harbaugh gets on the jumbotron and tells all the fans in the stands to put on burlap sacks and fall directly on their face's In repentance. And the craziest thing about it is, verse 10 tells us that it works. God is merciful. He doesn't destroy the city, and everything works out. Lesson learned listen to the guy screaming at you through a megaphone, and all will be well. Or is that actually the lesson that Jonah 3 is trying to tell us? The Hebrew word for repent, shub, appears four times in the last three verses of our passage. It means turn away. Turn away from evil. Turn away from sin. In this way, the Ninevites are repenting. They are turning away from doing evil. They are turning away from violence. But what are they turning towards? When the king writes, let everyone call urgently on God, and God may yet relent, the Hebrew word for God that he's using is Elohim. And this means God, but it it means God a little more generally. It doesn't necessarily correspond to the God of Israel, the Lord, who is referred to earlier in the passage as Yahweh or Jehovah. So the fasting and the sackcloth aren't actually out of obedience, much less love, to the personal God of Israel, but They are out of fear. Hey, this guy says that this God that he's talking about is going to destroy us, so everybody stop what you're doing, and maybe this God will hit the pause button. See, without question, fear is a strong motivator. Fear of a vengeful, wrathful God has caused repentance for centuries. Believe in God and do what you're told or you're going to hell. This is precisely what the megaphone guy outside of Michigan Stadium is peddling. Fear. It's not necessarily wrong. In fact, if you don't know Jesus, you will go to hell. But it's an attitude of making sure that we've got our bases covered by living a really moral, good life. And the reality is that most religions operate just like this. Turn away from the bad stuff, do good stuff, and make sure that the scale is heavier on the good side than the bad by the time you die, and you'll be fine. And if you're listening to this today, and that's what you've always been taught, that Christianity is all about, let me say, I'm sorry. If you have a negative view of the church for this very reason, I'm sorry. And that view would make sense if that was what you've been told your whole life. And I empathize with you completely if you have misgivings about the gospel for that very reason. But what if I told you that the Christian gospel actually says something else? What if I told you that Christianity isn't about living a moral good life at all? What if I told you that the Christian understanding of eternity, of heaven and hell, isn't actually on your shoulders? What if I told you that Christianity promises that when you turn away from evil, when you turn away from sin, you get to turn towards grace? What if I told you that repentance wasn't about fearing God's wrath, but was about stepping into the overwhelming joy of God's forgiveness? Like the king of Nineveh, we can live our whole lives in fear, trying to make sure that we've done more good than bad. Or we can believe that Jesus, the Son of God, in an act of goodness beyond anything that we are capable of, took all our bad, all our evil, all our guilt and shame, and the burdens we carry upon himself at the cross, and washed all of those things away in his blood. What if I told you, no matter what you've done, if you confess your wrongdoings to God, ask for forgiveness, and believe that Jesus died for you, you are guaranteed freedom from balancing your rights and wrongs forever. See, God hates sin. He hates evil. Sin angers him, and he will not sit idly by while it persists. And as Christians, we don't fear this fact, we celebrate it. Because if God was apathetic towards evil, then we would have no confidence that he would eradicate it once and for all. He knew that left to our own devices, we would continue to sin, continue to do evil, that we would never be able to satisfy his righteous and just anger ourselves. So he acted. He sent Jesus into the world, and when Jesus took our place on the cross, God's just anger was satisfied. Jesus' sacrifice was so good that it knocks that scale to the ground once and for all. When we turn from our sin, turn away from evil, we turn towards the grace and love Jesus earned for us though we had nothing, though we had done nothing to earn it or deserve it. A really smart pastor and thinker, Kevin DeYoung, put it this way. The mystery of the Christian life is that Christ expects us to flee sin and the devil, but does not expect us to rid ourselves of either on this side of glory. Repentance is a way of life, and so is the pursuit of godliness. No matter what the invitation stands, turn away from your sin. Repent, not out of fear, but out of joyful expectation of God's grace chasing you down. Jesus says in Mark 2, verse 17, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You're not perfect. You're never going to be. So stop trying. You're a sinner. You are sick. You are selfish. You live for yourself a lot more than you live for others. How do I know this? Because I do too. Jesus has come to call you. So repent, fall on your knees and be honest about your shortcomings. Not out of fear of the consequences, though they are real, but out of a deep, eternal relief that when we turn away from sin, we turn towards the love and forgiveness Jesus won for us on the cross. Before the fight with your spouse, before you snap at your kids, before the hurtful comment on social media, before the catastrophic life choice, repent. Do not wait. Tim Keller, who wrote the book that we're basing this sermon series off of, he didn't write the book of Jonah, he wrote the book, The Prodigal Prophet, he says that the Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. Stop pretending you can overcome that difficulty on your own. Let go and let him save you. As we wrap up, I want to share a quick story. My first year of seminary, I had much of my arrogance, much of my pride and self-centeredness forcibly ripped away from me in one way or another. Kind of the break you down to build you up thing. And now that I'm totally humble, modest, and selfless, I am a testament that it worked. One day, I'm feeling especially guilty as I look back on my past, and I feel an overwhelming desire to tell somebody about it. I just have to. And so I call my best friend Jeff and ask if he'll meet me in Lansing, which is in the middle of the state of Michigan. I drive from the west side of the state, he drives from the east side of the state, and we meet in Lansing to get coffee. Eventually, I hand him this list of sins that I had written down that I never shared with anybody my whole life. The whole drive over, I was nervous, and at this point, as I'm handing over the paper, I'm terrified. I fully expect him to be shocked to get up, drive straight back to the east side of the state, and never speak with me again. But instead, he he looks me square in the eye, crumples up the piece of paper, throws it away, and says, These things can't define you anymore because Christ does. God has already forgiven you. TCC, God has already forgiven you. You, If you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you are forgiven. So repent and trust that grace awaits you. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Repent before it's too late, often. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.